Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host, America's most beloved sports writer and Hall of Famer, Kevin Kernan. This is Coach and Kernan, our flagship show. Uh, we'll get going quick with our guest because he's a repeat guest and keep the preamble a little short, but big news for our audience. Hit over 20,000 subscribers uh, this past weekend. Numbers doubled once we looked at a nuance of our system. Um, so we're going to continue to try to keep it ad-free, but we are entertaining sponsorships now. So uh, great news for the production network today and a tribute to our show here, Coach and Kernan, as our first show and all of our shows on our network. So congratulations to that, Kevin. Yeah, yeah. it's good news. It's about yep. time. People finally woke up. Yes. Yep. We, we, we rattled the cages long enough here. And um, but just a little note to our, our subscribers. Just want to say thank you. Just keep download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We can keep the good stuff rolling for you guys. Faithful support in 72 countries right now. So um, Kevin, great articles this week. I love the one on the John Wooden uh, baseball and 17 inches, but we've got a lot going on in baseball now. Obviously, all-star breaks coming up, trade deadline, draft happened last night, the dog and pony show. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the gentleman you wrote about or alluded to in the article, uh, we've heard a lot about him on our show. He's in the backgrounds of baseball and he should be brought in the forefront. And you did that with the article. And I, I think that was appreciated by all. Yeah, Dave. And that's what I try to do with my ball nine stuff. And also here, of course, I'm actually writing to get people who need to be noticed should get noticed. It's really that simple. Same thing with our podcast. There's so much junk out there. So much, I would call it filler, candy, podcast, boring podcast, guys bloviating. Um, so John Scalinos is, is a, he's, he's, he's a legend in the coaching community, baseball. He, um, uh, he gave the famous speech, and he did, gave it many times, but I highlighted it in 1996. Um, he would wear a, a home plate around his neck, and he'd give into his speech about everything. And 20 minutes into the speech, he'd explain why you're wearing a home plate. And he would ask about what's the size of the plate in Little League, 17 inches. What's the size in, in Pony League, 17 inches. High school, college, minors, baseball. It's all about 17 inches. And if you have a pitcher who can't get the ball over the plate, can't control it over the over the 17 inches you don't reward them by making the plate 20 inches or 25 inches but that's what we've done in sports now uh everything from the steel the base stealing rules to fake runners fake balls fake strikes especially in baseball it's it's, it's really pathetic no other word for it um um you know and, and we've taken the game away from the athletes that's why i'm particularly uh uh excited about uh getting our, our lend back and because um you know he, he talks about when baseball was baseball. It's really that simple. Without a doubt. And I, I love the graphic on it and the connection to John Wooden because that pyramid of success has become legendary over time. I would love to see the 17 inches become legendary and mainstream like the pyramid of success because it's just as significant. Well, actually, I, Chris Vitale did a great job with that, but I suggested it and uh, because it hit me. And of course, in the article, if you read the article, you got a surprise in there. So I'm not going to tell everybody, go to Ball Nine and read it. You yeah. Know, spend five minutes a day learning something about baseball and uh, and not just numbers. Uh, you know, 17 inches is a number, but it's a it's an important number. And it's all about how the game should be coached, played. And I, I, I make it modern day by dealing with Mark Wiley, who's a longtime pitching coach. He's, he's also a show on the network. No, nobody knows more. That's the thing. Nobody knows more pitching than the people we have on. And he was actually coached by Scalinos, but here's one of the great parts, and you'll see it in the article. There's a Bill Walton connection too to Wiley. Yeah. So uh, it's all there, and uh, it's it, it was a really good one. And again, thank, it's not me. You know, I, I made the call Saturday to Mark. He was there. I put it all together Saturday, wrote it all on Saturday one day. So uh, that's a, that was a tough 2000. It was a busy Saturday, but worth it. Yeah. Well, that's because you listen well and your, uh, your, your relationships allow people to bring the best version of themselves out. So that's what you bring the ball nine. That's what you bring to here too. And we appreciate that a ton. I, I love the Bill Walton connection too. I'm a big Bill Walton fan. And um, of course, Mark being coached by Scalinas and Walton being coached by Wooden. It's uh, It's got many layers to it. So I encourage everybody to read Kevin's articles twice a week. You, you'll, uh, you'll learn a ton about baseball, about life and about leadership. And you'll learn about people who should be brought to the forefront of baseball and life. And it's, it's kind of how we came about our guest today, a little bit fortuitous that we met. Um, episode 223 now, repeat guest for us, Lynn Furman, the sports time traveler. Lynn, welcome back to our show. 
Well, thank you very much, Dave and Kevin. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And uh, before we get started, you have a unique way of presenting your material. I haven't seen anything like it out there. Um, and as Kevin mentioned, you you bring about sports and specifically baseball when it was played the right way, when men were men. And we're going to learn about a little bit of that today. And um, But re- before we do, remind our audience of the rules of the sports time travel because they're, they're unique and you stick to them. You don't look into tomorrow. You're looking into what's going on right now. That's right. I'm trying to have a personal experience and share it with my audience when there's something so exciting, so compelling, I just feel I have to write about it. So what I do is the sports time traveler. The premise is that I'm traveling back in time virtually to experience great sporting events from the distant past as if they're happening now. And the, the main rules of sports time travel is I focus on events that happen precisely five to 10 decades ago. So while I, I will look back exactly 50 years to the day or 60 years or 70, 80, 90 or 100 years, I, I focus on those uh, those those decades. Mostly I'm focusing on what happened exactly 50 years ago and sometimes 60 years ago. And the reason I do this, I found personally that if you if you follow sports day by day, exactly in a certain amount of time, exactly 50 years ago, you get the feeling of being in the moment. So for example, uh, my main project this year is I'm following the 1973 Mets 50 years ago to the day. I was a little kid back in 1973, and that was my first really big year that I, I remember what happened. But I don't remember all the details. I just remember the overarching story, and it's a great story. Uh, and so now I'm kind of going back and reliving it day by day. And there's all kinds of things that I don't remember or just never knew about at the time that I just find, find really exciting. But, but I'm not just following the Mets. I'm following sports in general from 50 years ago and also following uh, some events from 60, 70, 80, 90 or 100 years ago. And by following, by sticking to those rules, that, that basic rule of sports time travel, only go day by day, don't look ahead. I get in the moment and I get that full sense of excitement that you get by following sports today. And the other thing is I get to appreciate some of the great stories and the great athletes from 50 to 100 years ago, a time when they weren't getting paid these enormous amounts of money. They were playing because they loved the game. Yeah. Well, I, I commend your discipline because I'm the type of person I read the first 10 pages of the book then I go right and read the last 10 pages. So the middle makes sense to me. But I've even tested you in our conversations. And I always ask you, and that's, I guess, my immaturity, saying, what happens What happens next? And you won't budge. You uh, you stay strict with your dichotomy. You're very present in the past. And I, I love that about you and the way and it, it comes out in your work. And you really get a, you allow us to go back with you, which is fun, not just to listen to your podcast, but also uh, read your your articles that you, you put out there. So well, we're talking about first here uh, an event that happened on July third, nineteen sixty-three. Did I get the date right with the sixteen the, the, game? game? Yeah, the game was actually on July second. So I, I write my article as though it was July third because I'm reading the newspaper accounts from exactly sixty years ago. So exactly sixty years ago last week on July third, nineteen sixty-three, I read all the newspapers about the game that happened on July second, and it was right. it was a yeah, very special game. game. Yeah, paint a picture of that game without going into detail because I got some numbers I want to throw at you. And so, uh, so for, first, I just want to mention that this was one of these interesting cases where, by because I, I'm reading sports history from 50 years ago, day by day, I had seen a reference some sometime in 1973, in early 1973, a sports reporter mentioned this special game that had taken place on July 2nd, 1963. So I made a note. That when it came, when I got to July 2nd, July 3rd of this year, when it got to exactly 60 years, that I would then read the newspaper account of that game. So for months, I was waiting for this moment. And it was a very, it turned out to be a really special moment. So um, I'll let you go ahead and ask uh, ask that question you wanted to ask. Oh, yeah. Well, paint a, paint a picture of the game. So the game that we're watching, the general significance of it, the length of the game. And then and I've got some questions that I think will help um, bring about at least it'll bring about what my experience was when I read your article and podcast, listen to the podcast. So, so obviously it's a mid season game between two contenders, the Milwaukee Braves. So the Braves used to be in Milwaukee at that time and the San Francisco giants. And they're playing at old candlestick park. And on the mound 
are two of the greatest pitchers of the time. You've got Juan Marichal of the Giants. He's early in his career at that point. And Warren Spahn is starting for the Milwaukee Braves. And Spahn's near the end of his career, but he's still pitching uh, extremely well. So that's that's kind of the setup. Uh, um, one more thing I should mention. Anytime you've got the Braves and the Giants playing against each other, in the late 50s and throughout the 1960s, it means you've got two of the greatest players of the generation, if not two of the greatest players in the history of the game, Hank Aaron playing for the Braves and Willie Mays for the Giants. So it's always special when you get to read a story that includes Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. Oh, sure. Two of the greatest of all time. And certainly can't forget those those two in this story, even though it, it somewhat revolves around the pitching. Um, and that's what I kind of want to start with. I want to throw two numbers at you and you, you deep dive it any way you want. But the significance of the number 25 and the number 42 in this game. Yeah, so 25, that would be the age of Juan Marichal. So Juan, Juan Marichal, who was a, a great pitcher throughout the 60s, uh, he's early in his career and he's off to hit the best start of his career uh, this season in 1963. Uh, he's at this point going into the game on July 2nd, 1963. He's 12 and 3 with a 2.38 ERA. And just three weeks earlier, he threw a 98-pitch masterpiece, his first no-hitter of his career against the Houston Colt 45s. That was the original name of the Astros, by the way. They have that hat. And then, uh, and then he's pitching against Warren Spahn. So Spahn, at this point, is 42, and he's uh, still going strong. He's, uh, in case people don't know who Warren Spahn was, he was, a at this point in time, he's a 13-time All-Star. He has 11 wins against three losses mid-season here, so he's well on his way to his 12th 20-plus win season. And coming into the game, he had just thrown a 92-pitch shutout of the Dodgers, and this is the first place Los Angeles Dodgers, um, the team they're eventually going to go to the World Series and beat the Yankees. This is uh, the Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale uh Dodgers and, and and Spahn just shut them out coming into this game. So you've got two pitchers coming into this game who are really at the top of their games. One's 25 years old, one's 42 years old. Um, Jim Murray and uh, Kevin, I, I'd love to know if you ever met Jim Murray. In my sports history, uh, uh, my data mining, I, I come across Jim Murray all the time. He was, uh, uh, in my article, I say he was the greatest sports columnist west of Wisconsin. And he had the morning of the game, he wrote a, a celebratory piece about Warren Spahn. So here's a guy writing in the Los Angeles Times, and he's he's well, you know, talking about the greatness of Warren Spahn. He still can't get over this 92-pitch shutout from, um, from uh, the few days ago uh, against the Dodgers. And some picking up on something, Kevin, you had said earlier, Spahn, uh, uh, Murray writes that Spahn's principal secret is immaculate control. And that's going to come into play uh, in this game we're talking about today that took place 60 years ago. So, um, so that's, that's kind of the setup, but that's, that's the 25 and the 42 yeah. there. Okay. I'll throw a couple, two more numbers at you. 227 and 201. Yeah. So 227 and 201, these are staggering numbers when you hear the context. So this game went nine innings and there was no score. So we got a nothing-nothing game going into extra innings. And there's this is there's no designated hitter in these days, but they didn't pinch hit for either either pitcher. And the game goes into extra innings, and both managers stick with their pitchers. And they go through the 10th inning, the 11th inning, in the 12th inning, both guys retire the side in order. They go into the 13th inning. Uh, they get into the 14th inning, and finally, in the bottom of the 14th, Spawn gets into trouble. And um, he, um, uh, there's a pop fly, and three Braves are around it. No, nobody catches it. And uh, all of a sudden, he's got a situation uh, where he's got uh, runners on first and second, and, uh, and then he, he manages to uh, get out of the inning. And then it goes on to the 15th inning. Both pitchers are still going. Each of them bat for themselves in the 14th and 15th innings. 
And then, and then the game gets into the 16th inning. And now we're running up against, they used to have a curfew at that time. They're just 25 minutes short of the National League curfew. It's, it's 1.55 in the morning in San Francisco. It's 3.55 in the morning for anybody who's listening on the radio in Milwaukee. And Willie Mays comes up. And Marischal yells out to Willie Mays, hit one out. And uh, Spahn, who's known for pitching a screwball, his screwball was, was going perfect all night. He throws a screwball on the first pitch to Mays, but it doesn't break. And Willie Mays creams it. And, and Mays uh, told a reporter in the uh, San Francisco Examiner the next day, I knew it was gone the moment I creamed it. So Willie Mays wins the game in the bottom of the 16th, the one to nothing game. So the, the 201 and the 227, those are the number of pitches. Spawn at 42 years old, threw 201 pitches. And Marischal threw 227 pitches. Just, just absolutely staggering numbers. That's like four starts nowadays for pitchers, 227 pitches. I'm going to throw a couple couple names at you and then transition over to Kevin. We'll, and we'll get back to, I know you wanted to share something later on in the show about the project you're working on with the Mets as well. But how does Cy Young and Bartolo Colon factor into this story from 1963? So I, I mentioned that coming into the game, Spahn was coming off a shutout against the Dodgers. So he had pitched nine scoreless innings coming into this game. And... I looked it up, and before that, I was kind of curious to see how many scoreless innings he had. Before that, before that Dodgers game, he had pitched three scoreless innings in his last outing. So he had actually had 12 scoreless innings coming into this game, and then he and he throws the first 15 innings scoreless. So, so he's up to a 27-inning scoreless streak at, at age 42 before he finally gives up that Willie Mays home run. So, uh, so I looked it up and I found out at the time – he tied the all-time record for scoreless innings, a scoreless inning streak by anybody age 42 over, and, and he tied Cy Young. So Cy Young at age 42 also had once thrown 27 consecutive scoreless innings. And that remained the record until 2015 when uh, Bartolo Colon, pitching for my favorite team, the New York Mets, actually broke that record, that that 42-year-old scoreless streak record, he, he pitched more than 27 scoreless innings. So that's the uh, that's the link there with Cy Young and Bartolo Colon. I like that. We, you brought up the Mets. I'll just I'll, I'll tease something later with this and turn it over to Kevin. But I'll throw two two numbers at you now. Audience, we're we're transitioning a little bit here, but uh, eight and one, eleven and twenty-eight. How does that factor into your beloved Mets in the in the side story you're doing? So, so again, I'm following day by day the 1973 Mets. And the Mets actually started okay in 1973. Uh, in early May, they were 12-9. and nine. They were two games behind the Cubs. Cubs had a really good start that year. And then the Mets go into this total malaise. They, they have some injuries, uh, most notably their starting shortstop, Bud Harrelson, breaks a bone. He's out. Uh, their starting catcher, Jerry Grody, who's considered the best defensive catcher in the league uh, at that time. He, he's also out for like six weeks. I think he broke a bone also. And the Mets go into a, a real slump. But whenever Tom Seaver is pitching, and for anybody who doesn't know, Tom Seaver, uh, his nickname was Tom Terrific. He had another, another nickname I'll mention in a second. But uh, Tom Seaver was one of the outstanding pitchers in the National League Uh from the late 60s all the way through uh, the 1970s. And uh, in the eight weeks from May 2nd to June 28th, when the Mets had Tom Seaver start, they were eight and one. When Tom Seaver did not start, they were 11 and 28. So they're absolutely miserable unless Tom Seaver is starting. And this is probably one of the reasons why Tom Seaver back then started being referred to just simply as the franchise, because, I mean, he's basically the whole team there. Yeah, no, and I didn't mean and you discipline not looking ahead and 
Sorry to transition, but you mentioned the Mets. I figured I'd I'd have to get you on that now. And we've got some other stuff later. But I'll pass it on to Kevin right now. I know he had a question for him about Jim Murray too. Yeah, before I get to that, I got uh, my first question, uh, Len, is what's a newspaper? <clears throat> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. And because uh, people would have to read uh, to uh, nowadays to understand what a newspaper is. And newspapers would have to send writers on the road all the time, spend money, keep good writers, uh, not get uh, run by political uh, uh people and um, all these other things that they're doing now and they wonder why they're going out of business. That's just a little sidelight. But, um, you know, the, the complete games, you know, that, that speaks for itself. Juan Marichal had 18 complete games that year, uh, 1968 at 30. And he, here's the number that gets me, though, is Spahn. Spahn had 22 complete games that year, 382 for his career, 244 for Marichal's career. And uh, this year in baseball, you know, there's been 20 complete games so far in the whole in the whole shebang. So what does that speak? What does that say about the game where we're at? Well, the, the thing that boggles my mind is the whole idea of counting pitches and not having pitchers go complete games. The idea behind that is you're trying to preserve these pitchers' health. But yet yet we're seeing, I, I don't know the, the actual statistics, it seems to me we're seeing more injuries now than ever among pitchers. So, so the pitch count control uh, doesn't seem to be working. And, and, you know, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe if you let a pitcher work, uh, it, it's actually more beneficial for them than uh, holding them up. So that, that's that's kind of my quick take on no, that. No, I, I agree. But where, where did you go to college, Len? I went to uh, Lehigh and Duke. Oh, my uh, my skin doctor's from Lehigh. He's a legend there. So uh, so you went to some elite colleges. So you have some uh, you could if you could, if you had power in baseball, maybe you can get something done because it's only the people who went to elite colleges who get their words. Uh, uh, listen to in baseball, but you make a wonderful point. I've said it for years. They don't pitch enough. Uh, you don't go crazy with the pitch counts. I'm not saying you throw 200 a game, but you you, you work. And I'm going to bring it right to today's modern day game. Uh, the dumbest manager in baseball, Aaron Boone, um, he pulled out Herman with 74 pitches the other day, cruising to a 4-1 win. And by the time he uh, got done with his bullpen work, Boone. Uh, they would. They lost uh, seven to four. Should have been eight to four, because the base runner at first in the ninth inning, a speedy guy for the Cubs. There was a line drive hit to right field. Stanton was in right field, couldn't move, and it was clearly going to be a double. But the guy froze, and then he didn't score on a chopper over the mound too when he was on third. So those are just some side. I'm bringing this up to point out that those mistakes would not happen in 1963 because the players understood the game did not have to be coached and roboted about everything. And, uh, I found it interesting too. I think in that game you had McCovey McCovey was playing the outfield, correct? Right. Yeah. It's early in his career. So McCovey was in left. Willie Mays was in center, uh, for the giants. And, uh, there's an interesting, uh, note about Willie McCovey in that game. Yeah. Uh, Tell everybody that one. So McCovey, uh, for people who don't know, hit over 500 home runs in his career. He's one of the great home run hitters. And coming in, this is early in his career. Uh, coming into that game, he was one of the uh, leaders in home runs in the National League. He had 18 at the time. He comes up in the bottom of the ninth. It's a nothing nothing game, and he uh, hits a blast to right field. And McCovey looks at it, sees it's gone. He says it's at least three feet in fair territory. He thinks he just won the game, one to nothing. And the umpire calls it foul. And McCovey just goes berserk. His Both his coach, his first base coach, Larry Jansen, and his uh, manager, Alvin Dark, have to restrain him. He's so irate because he's absolutely sure that this, go- this ball was gone. Uh, in fact, there was a really uh, great quote from him uh, in the uh, San Francisco Examiner the day after the game. He said, I followed the ball all the way out, but evidently the umpire didn't. 
it's a shame to hit a ball like that and lose what it means. It was at least three feet fair when it left the park. I've scoured YouTube trying to find any kind of video of this game. It just doesn't exist. I would have loved to have seen that. And of course, there was no such thing as instant replay review at that time. And uh, so they, they argued, uh, but the, to no avail, the game ended up going into extra innings. Earlier in that game, Hank Aaron had a big hit. And if you recall, Candlestick Park, the winds were always insane. And the before the game, the wind was coming in really strong from left field. Aaron hit a shot in the third or fourth inning that went uh, very deep into left field, but the wind just stopped it like a brick wall and the cubby caught the ball. So that, that one could have ended up being a, a game winner. And Juan Marichal actually said when he when Aaron hit the ball, he thought it was gone because he didn't think Aaron could actually hit a ball any harder than that one. So you know, it was kind of interesting that you had these three great home run hitters in that game and they all hit balls that could have been home runs. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, Willie Mays, you know, it's like a fairy tale finish. You got two guys pitching 16 innings, two of the great pitchers of the era pitching 16 innings and who else wins the game, but Willie Mays. So it really is one of the great regular season baseball games that I can think of that ever took place. Absolutely. And, and I was aware of the game simply because of the uh, number, you know, the complete, complete game by the pitchers. But I wasn't aware of the details. And uh, a couple things here. Jim Mary, I, you know, I knew Jim. He's one, of, you know, I'm lucky enough to have uh, kind of bridged a couple generations of writers. I knew Jim, knew Red Smith. By the time I got knew Jim, he was much older, still very witty, uh, wore these Coke Coke bottle glasses. Um, you know, I, I don't know how good his eyesight was at that point, but he was still a, when I met him, he was still a tremendous writer. Um, you know, I have a book of his works and uh, it's the kind of guys I model myself after is those guys because they told the truth and they had some fun and they laughed and they made sports fun. A couple candlestick uh, notes for me. Um, I just thought of when you were talking, I also covered games at Candlestick, many games. When I worked in San Diego, go up there all the time with the Padres, and um, you know Roger Craig was the manager and things like that. But it was it's it's the coldest place ever. I mean, uh, Tim Flannery, the, the um, longtime Padre, you know he's a California boy, lives in Northern California now, was a Giants coach when they won the World Series and all that stuff. But Flan was a surfer, so he would he would um, he would. Whenever the Padres played in Candlestick Park, and don't forget back then, uh, Land, we had great access in the clubhouse. It's not like now where you're in for 20 minutes, nobody's in there because they're all in the back rooms where they're real fancy. Uh, so there was nowhere to hide in Candlestick. But so, so Flannery used to lather up with Vaseline on his body, and then he'd put on his surfing wetsuit, and that's how he would play games sometimes at the uh, at, at Candlestick. That's how cold it was. And uh, I think that gives you some real insight into to how cold it was. I also was there the day of the earthquake in 89. That's another story for another day. I won't, I won't bore you with that one right now. But the um, the thing I love about looking back and what you do is that you can see the passion in your voice about the games. And I think the fans felt the same way. Um, even though I'm sure there wasn't that many people at that game because it was just a bad place to go watch a game. So uh, did you happen to look at the attendance figures that day? I'm just curious. You know, that that's something I got to go back and take a look at. I, I didn't I didn't look at the attendance numbers. I'm, I'm assuming I'm, I could probably I'm guessing, find uh, I'm guessing off the top of my head, 15,000 maybe. But imagine seeing that quality of, uh, of play uh, in those players. And you, you make a great point with those uh, home run hitters. And the one thing I will say about instant replay, I've always been behind instant replay for home runs. I think it's uh, it's instant for one thing. It's truthful for the most part, unless the ball goes way up over the uh, uh, over the foul pole and you don't see the uh, you, and the camera doesn't follow it. And it's also I think it's one of the hardest plays for umpires to call. It's different in the playoffs because you have. You have the line umpires, and basically they're bored to death. Their one job is to make sure home runs are fair or foul. Uh, but even umpires, you know, they, 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 they talk about umpiring. The key to umpiring is not not bouncing your head. It's getting in a position, staying, staying and looking. You know, 
who knows with that first base umpire, he might have been freezing to death there that night and uh, lost track of the ball. So that's a great quote from McCovey. That's the kind of quote writers used to get. And uh, yeah, I'm all for instant replay. The other point I want to make is the veteran managers, uh, Bobby Bragan, you know, and Alvin Dark. I think, uh, could you imagine if you had two nerd managers today, they would have pulled out those guys probably fifth, sixth inning. Yeah, absolutely. They just don't let pitchers go. I mean, even you see, even now, somebody's pitching a no hitter in the seventh. They'll take them out because yeah. he's, he's already got 110 pitches or something. They they're preserving the arm and and you know, is it is it really going to hurt them that much to finish out the game? Well, that you gets know. right to my final uh, not final point, but one one of the big points I want to make, and I think you do a great job of bringing this back to life for people. People want to go to a game and see something special. That's why they go to a game. They want to relax. They want to talk to their friends. They want to hang out, have a hot dog, have a beer, have whatever. They want to be entertained. And I think that's what the this new modern era of elite uh, know-nothings who never played the game, um, um, you know, they don't understand that. The people who went to that game, no matter how many there are, and I'll look it up in a second uh, when you go back to, to Dave, but those people will remember that game for the rest of their lives. The people who didn't go will say, oh, I should have went. I was going to go to that game, so maybe next time they go to a game. That's the thing that this modern age loses. We don't care. We don't want to see six relievers. You know, we want to. If a pitcher's pitching well, leave them in the game. See the test of manhood. Can he battle through it? That's what it's all about. And that's what baseball has lost. That's why, um, you know, I enjoy, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be quite frank here. I enjoy when you read your stories uh, as opposed to just reading the story, if that makes any sense. I don't know. Where, where do you stand on that? Because sometimes you, uh, you read your story, right? Explain, explain to the listener what you do there. Well, I, I started the Sports Time Traveler last year just as an online newsletter. I've, I've now... Uh, posted about 160 articles. Uh, last month, I started testing out uh, a, uh, a podcast feature. I, I publish on Substack. Substack's a right. platform that a lot of writers use. So Substack has now added a podcast capability <laughs> where I can actually uh, record myself reading the article. So I've just started in the last few weeks uh, reading the articles and uh, posting those recordings in the podcast section of my site on Substack. And by the way, to find my site, the simplest thing is I put up a website now, thesportstimetraveler.com. So I've got that URL, www.thesportstimetraveler.com. And if you go to that, it's easy to remember. It takes you, there's a link, it takes you right to my Substack page. Uh, and that's where you can either see the written articles or you can listen to the recorded versions of the article. So I've just started recording articles. I recorded this one about the 16 inning game. I also recorded uh, one that I called The Sure Thing. It's about a, a New York Mets game on July 4th, 1973, where Tom Seaver's pitching. And that's where I mentioned the, uh, the dichotomy of Seaver going eight and one while the rest of the Mets have gone 11 and 28. So I'll start um, uh, putting up the podcast versions of my articles where I simply read the article. And uh, I, I appreciate your, uh, your feedback on that. I, I really enjoy... Uh, reading the articles because I'm, I'm personally, as you can tell, I'm personally real excited about this. this oh yeah. Started- and that's my whole point. That's, that's the difference between, you know, maybe me reading it and not, what, not the same passion. And again, you're talking to somebody, first of all, I'm, I'm completely honest with people. And, and I think that's the way you should go to be honest. I'm also the guy who I, I walked up to this NBA coach who was doing some basketball games, co- uh, color on some basketball games many years ago and I said, you know what? Don't take this personally, but I think you're a way better broadcaster than you are a coach. And that his name was Hubie Brown. So I think I was right about that. You know, Hubie, Hubie was a great coach, entertaining coach, but he's an unbelievable broadcaster. So I, I just wanted to throw that out there saying, and I think, I think your strength there is, uh, it doesn't have to be every one, of course, but I think when you do the podcast, your passion comes through. And I know we want to get to the other game, so I'll go back to Dave. Oh, no, great, uh, great insight on all that. I think that your guys' shared experiences paint a whole other picture for our audience. Len, what are we missing in the 
the 16 inning game that we haven't covered yet that, that you think is important for our audience to understand? I think we've actually covered. You got it all. Uh, well, the, you know, the, the one interesting postscript uh, that I don't have in the article, because again, I don't look ahead, but I was interested to find out, well, what happened in their next starts? So uh, four days later, or maybe it was, uh, I think five days later, they, they actually gave the guys an extra day of rest. They gave them four days off instead of the typical three at that time. So each of them pitched on four days rest. And Marischal didn't have such a great game. But Spahn pitched another shutout. <laughs> Can you believe that? At age 42, he pitched another shutout. So that took him up to 36 innings in which the only run he let up was a home run to Willie Mays. We'll, we'll give we'll give you that a home run to Willie Mays. So really unbelievable stretch. Um, oh, there is one more thing related that I, I should mention. So the articles when I was reading the articles about the 16 inning game uh, in the newspapers on July 3rd, 1963, they mentioned that it was the 30th anniversary that the, the day before actually the game the, the day the 16 inning game took place coincidentally was the 30th anniversary of perhaps an even more special pitching performance. On July 2nd, 1933, Carl Hubble of the New York Giants, another screwball pitcher. Yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> he, he threw a one to nothing shutout. It was an 18 inning shutout at the, at the polo grounds in front of 50,000 fans. And so I had to go back I went, went on another virtual trip back in time. So I'm digging up all the newspaper articles I can find. I, I go through about five or six newspapers from the next day, July 3rd, 1933. And surprisingly, a lot of them were just kind of nonchalant. Like, you know, because back in those days, people routinely pitched into extra innings, although 18 innings was something special. But here's a description from John Drebinger in the New York Times. He called it a titanic pitching duel in which Hubble gave one of the most astounding exhibitions of endurance and mound skill seen in many years. The tall, somber left-hander rose to his greatest heights, surpassing even his brilliant no-hit classic of 1928. He pitched perfect ball in 12 of the 18 innings. It was an exhibition that held the packed arena spellbound throughout the four hours. And also, uh, it turns out that that is the last time that anybody has ever pitched an 18 inning shutout. Wow. And there's a, and I, you saw my, my son's question on the Willie McCovey home run. And, and obviously it's, we all know the answer, but his first instinct was, uh, you know, why didn't they challenge it? On the, <laughs> he wanted to know. So we all know they didn't have the technology back then, but I agree with Kevin on that where, you know, if it's, if it's instant and it's truthful, the home run is, is something that you don't want to miss on and could have a different story. You would have been writing a different article, different podcast um, line if that ha if they did have the challenge. But I don't want to ask you to violate your founding principles because I know you don't look ahead. <clears throat> and I know you're chronicling that that uh, 73 Mets experience. We talked about Tom Seaver's record versus the rest of the starters. But could you update us on? You know, I won't ask you to go beyond today. Where are the Mets today back in your in your journey? And uh, if you want to tease anything, we're more than happy to let you tease it. On, uh, well, on this, this this stretch where when Seaver doesn't pitch, they they hardly win a game. is is not doing wonders for the team. And so after that twelve and nine start, they they've reached mid season. Actually, uh, yesterday they've reached mid season, um, and they're thirty five and forty six, and they're in last place in the National League East. And this is really the lowest depths that Tom Seaver has seen since he joined the team and won Rookie of the Year in 1967. So even the lowly Mets of the late 60s were, were never reached last place and, uh, and never had a, a record where they were 11 games under 500 at midseason. So it's really looking really dire for uh, for Mets fans in 1973 and it's uh, there was a game on July 4th that I was referencing a few minutes ago that is just kind of typical of how the Mets season is going so Seaver was pitching on July 4th 1973 in Montreal and the Expos they're they're very early in their franchise they they were a they were a um, expansion team in 69 
And so the Expos haven't done anything. This looks like it's a sure thing. You've got, you've got Tom Seaver on the mound playing the Montreal Expos. And Seaver gets off to a spectacular start to the game. He goes into the sixth inning with a no-hitter. And uh, Mets fans know that Seaver never pitched a no-hitter for the Mets. He, he had some really close calls. So I'm sure Tom Seaver was thinking, you know, this might be the day. And uh, so in, in the sixth inning, a, a ball comes back to him and it goes just under his glove and for a, and goes behind him for a single. So there, there goes the no-hitter. But Seaver is still going strong. And going into the eighth inning, he's got a 5 nothing lead because the Mets have supplied appropriately on July 4th, have supplied some fireworks that they don't usually provide. They've got five runs, all on home runs, including Willie Mays has hit his 657th home run. you got Seaver with a 5 nothing lead going into the eighth inning. This is a sure thing. And then in the eighth inning, it's uh, just a, a comedy of errors. So Seaver gets a, a couple of guys on, and then uh, and there's one out, men on first and second, and Ken Singleton of the Expos hits uh, what, the, uh, what uh, John Robertson and the Montreal Star called a perfect double play ball to shortstop. And Seaver said after the game, Singleton hit the ball exactly how he wanted him to hit it. And then Robertson describes the play. The ball even led the shortstop, Teddy Martinez, towards second. So all he'd have to do was flip to Felix Mian for one out and then over to first, and you're out of the inning, shut out intact. But there was uh, one problem with this sure thing. Uh, the Mets, as I mentioned earlier, they didn't have their regular shortstop, Bud Harrelson, one of the great fielding shortstops in history. He was out with a broken bone. Teddy Martinez was the backup shortstop. And depending on what account you read, in the New York Times, they said Martinez bobbled the ball. In the Daily News, they said he uh, booted the ball. However, whatever happened, he didn't handle it like Bud Harrison. Everybody was safe. Even the runner from second scored. Steve Seaver must have been stunned. The next batter gets a hit, and all of a sudden, it's five to four. And now we get to... Uh, our theme from a little earlier, pulling pitchers. Yogi Berra, the uh, Hall of Fame catcher and manager of the Mets in 1973, he decides he's going to pull Tom Seaver out of the game. And he's going to bring in Buzz Capra. Buzz Capra at this time has pitched a total of 24 games in his career. And he's Was he gonna... a movie producer? <laughs> And so Yogi Berra decides that uh, Buzz Capper is going to get Tom Seaver out of a jam. Uh, Yogi said after the game, I figured he could get us out of the inning and then I'd have Ray Sadecki come in and pitch to their left-handed hitters in the ninth. I really was expecting to see some kind of Yogiism in the newspaper, something like when you're stuck between two pitchers, take one. So Buzz <laughs> Capper comes in, he gives a single up to the first batter. Two batters later, he gives up a three-run homer. Expos win the game seven to five. This was a sure thing. <laughs> yeah, Tom Seaver leading 5 nothing in the eighth inning. He should have, Yogi Berra should have just let Tom Seaver pitch out of his own jam. Instead, the Mets lose the game, and they're either further, even further entrenched uh, in last place. So it's really looking desperate for the 1973 Mets right now. I got to, I got to, I did look it up. Uh, uh, my guess was pretty good. Uh, on the attendance figures that night, I said 15,000. It was actually 15,921. So, um, uh, and the next day, 11,189 people came. So, uh, it's, uh, a classic game. The, uh, the Braves were one for seven with runners in scoring position. The Giants were 0 for seven. Uh, but that's understandable considering how those pitchers knew how to bear down as did Tom Seaver. So, uh, that's 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 what's good about your stuff too. You you think about other things and you kind of you can, you can bring yourself back to the past as well and and bring it up to modern day times. It does. It makes you want to work to to learn more about the situation. And I think if Yogi could have stole your line, Kevin, that would have been a great Yogiism about Capra coming in to pitch. That would have been a, <laughs> an appropriate Yogiism. I would have. Would have liked well, it's that. funny too. One other thing. Uh, Again, uh, a lot of those people I've met through the years in those games. And, uh, you know, Warren Spahn went on to become um, 
you know, he was always great at the Hall of Fame and he was a rancher. And I, I got to I got to dig back. I'm forgetting now. But he um, he actually managed a minor league team out by where his ranch was. And I talked to people who've been to his ranch. Um, there was a scout whose father played for the, for the Red Sox and he became somehow was close friends with him. But he remembers going to Warren Spahn's ranch, Warren Spahn killing, a, you know, getting a cat, getting a, a nice piece of beef, cattle, you know, <laughs> get, 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 cutting, get, killing the cattle, uh, getting steaks and cooking steaks uh, 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 on the grill. So I, I got I to say this, Warren Spahn knew how to live. Yeah. And he uh mentor of one of our other podcasters and host Jim Cott talks about him all the time. And you mentioned Yogi Berra. Lindsey Berra was a guest on our show and um, it ain't over a great documentary. If people haven't seen that yet. I've got one question. I know Len's already answered our ball player question, but I got a question for both of you guys. Cause Kevin, you were immersed in these two cultures for a long time. And Len, it's obvious your practice to look back 50 years. If we're 50 years from today, how would we, make sense of what's going on with the Yankees and the Mets to, you know, a future generation, what's going on right now. Uh, you want to go first, Len, or me? Well, I think it's going to be a lot harder because you don't have the games being, I don't think you have the games being documented quite as well. Uh, you know, as Kevin was mentioning earlier, you, you had such outstanding sports writers and, uh, you know, I appreciate your insights, Kevin. They had better access to the players and they were traveling with the teams and they were writing these great detailed articles. So what I'm, it, it makes my job uh, really easy because I'm, I'm going back and just looking and I'm looking oftentimes through five, six, seven newspapers to get different angles and pick up different quotes from different players. But it's, you know, it's all there in the newspaper archives. When, when we look back 50 years to now, it's, it's going to be a lot harder because the articles are, are not as in depth and, and uh, they're scattered over, you know, all different types of media and, you know, is, is, you know, are, are a lot of, are a lot of things not going to exist in 50 years? You know, right, right now you, you've got quotes and in Instagram and the new threads and whatever. And uh, well, maybe those platforms won't exist anymore. And maybe you won't be able to find the information as easily. Well, that's a great point, Lynn. And again, this is exactly where newspapers have failed. Uh, baseball management has failed because what they do now, for the most part, it used to be you could get a, you know you'd go to the stars of the game and get your quotes, of course, but you could go to anybody in the clubhouse and get them. Now, after games, they're not there. They bring them to a podium or a place where they got the. It's all a form of advertising. They bring them to the uh, area where there's a uh, curtain hung up behind them with the latest uh, hospital that sponsors their games because everybody's got to be sponsored by hospitals because they have so many players hurt. And you, and if you you'll go to maybe four different outlets and you'll see the exact same quote. So nobody is digging like they were able to dig. And that's it's not just on the writers because it's about access, but it's also the league wanted to control information under Rob Manfred. And they've gotten to this point. They all do the same thing. So you're not even going, you know, unless these guys. You, here's where you're getting information now. When these guys retire and they get on their old buddy's podcast, they tell the truth. That's about it now. Other than that, you're going to get the same garbage. No, fair points. And, uh, Len, we sh- share with our audience how they can find you again. I know you mentioned it uh, mid-show, but where can they find your website, Substack Podcast, so we can support you as well? Yeah, so so my Substack site um, is uh, easily found if you just – go to Substack. So if you just type in Substack.com, that's S-U-B as in boy, Stack, S-T-A-C-K. Substack is the name of the platform. And then if you just search on the Sports Time Traveler, you'll find me. But the the simplest way is actually to go to my website, which is just a, which is just a splash page to take you to my Substack. So my website is thesportstimetraveler.com. I, I'm also on Instagram and the new threads, so if you if you look at uh, the look for the sports time traveler, uh, you'll you'll find me there too. But probably the best way is just go to the website thesportstimetraveler.com. That'll take you to my Substack site where you can see all my articles and all my podcasts. Podcasts are just uh, reading the articles. Yeah, no, and I, I agree with Kevin. I like when you read them too. Um, it, it it adds that it adds your personal touch to it, and it it brings the 
enthusiasm you have for what you do to the listener. So we appreciate that as well. And to our audience, just thanks again for the support. We're, we're, uh, we hit a new uh, mark and we're continue to rise. Keep following us. Keep download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, review. We keep giving you great content every week like we do on Coach and Kern and here. You know where to stream us. And Kevin, thanks for the question about the newspaper. I just got a Facebook direct message saying, Dave, can you please answer this question? What is a newspaper? So I may have to respond <laughs> to that one on Facebook Live tomorrow. Yeah, that's uh, one other point, Dave, before yeah. you sign us off. The, uh, I think that the over to your back to your question, the overriding uh, the fans, when they look back, they're going to say, how could the Yankees and how could the Mets, and we, we all know the Mets has spent the most money in the history of the baseball world. How could they spend so much money and have such crappy teams? That's the bottom line here. Yeah, no, I agree. There, there'll be a lot of a lot of questions asked, but that's both teams have spent a ton. Well, Brian Cashman, I, I give him credit. He's he's emperor for life, you know. And uh, it was the hitting coach's fault. And if you remember, Dave, way back when we started this stuff, I made fun of that hitting coach for his comments. It strikes hard. What, what, Yankees are in the, one of the top teams in exit velocity. Um, but you know what they're hitting like two thirty one, one of the worst teams. So it's such garbage. I'm so tired of it, and I'm only gonna I'm only gonna rant and rave more and take on uh, these idiots running these baseball teams. Yeah, we need you to keep doing that. It's uh, yeah, you did you you hit on that immediately, and that's uh, you know again that guy's a, he, he was not prepared for that job, and of course he's escaped. That's who they wanted. Now. It's like anything else. They. They're blaming, you know, and I'm not blaming the guy. He's doing his job. He, they hired him for what they wanted. And when when Cashman starts doing questions and comments like, well, you know, the ecosystems of our hitting, what we're trying to teach eco- ecosystems of hitting, shut up. Shut up. It's not about ecosystems of hitting. It's being, it's barreling balls. It's back to baseball. It's, it's moving runners along. It's not about just hitting some home runs and going to the weight room and pumping iron for an hour after a game like uh, like uh, Stanton does and then can't run the next day when there's a ball hitting the corner. Okay, I better shut up. No, that's good stuff. And, but, Len, this is a note to you now, and I hope you're around in 50 years to, to chronicle this, but make sure you leave a succession plan for somebody to chronicle this 50 years from now because uh, they're going to think it was a clown show watching some of this stuff without a doubt. So. But I uh, want to thank you again, Len, for your appearance on the show. Always great to have you. Second second time on. We look forward to many more. Kevin, thanks again for what you do for the show. Please support both Len and Kevin on, you know, Len on, on the Sports Time Traveler, Kevin on Ball 9. Support our other shows here on Real Voices of the Game Productions. And this is episode 223 right now, Coach and Kernan. We're signing off today. Audience, thank you. Len and Kevin, thank you.